Hey, all you intrepid architects out there. If you believe design can change the world, then you've found your humans here on this show, Architecting. My name is Angela Mazzi, and I'm an architect and career coach who's figured out how to live my passion while claiming a successful architecture career and lifestyle. This show is about the architect as a person and will help you bypass the status quo traps in our profession while teaching you how to make an impact in your career. We need to stand in our power as architects and use our skills to make great places. If you're with me, let's get architecting. One planet living, right? That makes sense. We need to live Mm -hmm. on one planet use one planet's worth of resources and not create more than one planet's worth of emissions, right? Then then the planet can absorb. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Architecting. And I am really excited today to have as my guest, one of my colleagues, Blaine Brownell. Um, Blaine is a professor and director of the School of Architecture at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. But he's also an architect and a researcher of emergent materials and applications. He's authored eight books on the subject, and he has really been an advocate for advancing sustainability conversations in our profession. He also writes the Mind and Matter column for Architect Magazine, so you might have read some of his articles there. And his work has been published widely, nationally and internationally. And another fun fact, um, he also was elevated with me in 2000 to the AIA College of Fellows. So welcome, Blaine. Angela, thank you so much for having me. So I want to know how you first became interested in sustainable materials and the biomimicry investigations you've been doing. That's a great question. Think. I became interested quite quite a long time ago in sustainability in general, like like many of us uh, growing up, being a little bit conscious of waste and and hearing about climate change. And although we haven't focused as much as we should uh, yet in built environment related disciplines, uh, I mean, there's a lot more focus now, which is good. But uh, there's just a general sense that I had about sustainability and environmental responsibility as I went through architecture school and had my first jobs in architecture firms. So uh, about the time that I was in my first job after graduate school, after I received my Master of Architecture degree, uh, my mentor at the time, Mark Womble, uh, asked me to research materials for a public project. At the time in education, the material palette that we had learned was, was pretty, uh, pretty small, uh, pretty simplistic. You know, we learned about kind of the basics, concrete, steel, brick, glass, wood. Uh, I'm oversimplifying a bit, but when confronted with the, the ex- kind of what I describe as a kind of exploding catalog of new materials, I was really surprised and excited but also a little confused that the that the profession at the at the time this is in the late 90s so I'm <laughs> dating myself there but at the time the profession wasn't really there didn't seem to be very many outlets for understanding or appreciating this 
this uh, rapidly growing catalog of materials. And because architects specify materials, obviously, on projects, uh, we have a, a huge responsibility, right, in how those materials perform environmentally. And so that really catapulted my interest in uh, looking more seriously at emerging materials and vetting them, trying to understand, well, which ones really are meaningful? You know, which ones have the greatest potential to to affect positive change? Mm, Yeah, yeah, because there's always that risk adversity to being the guinea pig on the part of the client. So having a little bit more background on why something ought to do what you hope it will do is important. Absolutely. And I totally understand. I mean, buildings are big investments and, you know, to say the least, and they need to stand up, right? They need to perform. And the the risk aversion makes sense. I mean, given, given the fact that, you know, all of the risks that are possible with buildings uh, and the economic investment, it's understandable that we're more conservative when we look at buildings. But at the same time, if we're not innovating in the way that we put buildings together and how buildings are composed, then we're, we're losing out on opportunities. And studies have shown, many have probably seen these, that uh, the productivity, and, and this is looking at kind of technological advancement uh, of the building industry is far below that of other industries. So we have to look at that balance between risk aversion and advancing the technology and capabilities that we have in architecture. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, you had this passion around the issue and you've continued to learn more about it and advance your own understanding, but how have you kind of leveraged that to help other people use this knowledge and start to make a difference in the built environment that we're all surrounded by? Well, probably not not too differently than you have, Angela, even though we, we do different things, uh, just being part of the industry and being an advocate for these issues through different channels is, is something that we do. I'm fortunate that uh, when I shifted into teaching that you know I really enjoy working with students and I'm able to do that more now since I have a, a full-time academic job than I did in the, in the first part of my career when I was a full-time practitioner. And I kind of had a mental shift from thinking that buildings would be my legacy. uh, And of course, legacy of the team, you know, I never designed a building alone to thinking of, well, people are to the extent that, you know, if I'm imparting ideas or, or uh, if I am fortunate enough to be able to have a positive influence on people like students, that that would be my legacy uh, to some degree. Of course, they teach me as well all the time. <laughs> so, so it's reciprocal, you know, and, and I, I love that. Uh, so the ability to teach and also uh, I, I'm incredibly fortunate to be able to write uh, regular articles for Architect Magazine and other journals because that gives me a platform for advocacy and sharing information. I will say that every, every article I write, I, I feel like a student, you know, because I might have some knowledge and some attitudes and some good sources, but I'm learning every time I, 
every time I teach, I learn every time I'm writing, I learn. So I, I find it to be, uh, it, even though it is really about advocacy on these issues, there's so much to learn. And it's, it's such a complex kind of series of challenges that we face in terms of sustainability that, uh, I, you know, I enjoy uh, learning as much about these issues as I do sharing them. Yeah, I mean, I know anytime I've tried to write an article, I think I have this knowledge because I've been reading and working with an issue. But the minute you have to actually publish something, every sentence counts and you suddenly realize, well, where did that come from? How do I substantiate? Yeah, right. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, this and it's helpful. These kinds of experiences, as I'm sure you know, feed into each other. They, they reinforce each other. So the more that I write and publish and lecture every, every time helps me in terms of my teaching or my mentorship to share some lessons that I've learned uh, with students. So if students don't understand right away, oh, I have to substantiate that, you know, it, that expertise hopefully helps them. I love the interconnectedness of all these things that you are doing. And I'd love to understand how you first got into writing books and writing articles. How did you find those opportunities? I, I found these opportunities really through being uh, incredibly lucky and being kind of in the right place at the right time with the right people. And the people part is essential because... Reflecting back on my start and looking at materials, again, my the, the design principle in this office uh, that I mentioned before gave me the task of looking at the materials. And he knew enough about me, I think, to know that that's something that I would like and find interest in. So I started, after that project experience, collecting a lot of information about products and innovative technologies that were, were not very well known. You know, they were, they were kind of made by startup companies or maybe untested. And I thought, well, who else is collecting information on these things? You know, maybe some will go on this project, but, but a lot of others will not, you know, be part of the project. And so I started creating a database and made a newsletter just to share, well, it's email, kind of really short newsletter to share findings every week. And a lot of people started to subscribe and get interested. And I, but my point is, the next the next kind of milestone was, uh, and at this time I was at Seattle. I was in Seattle working at the office of MBBJ, and one of the managing partners who's still there, uh, Steve McConnell, said, "Well, you should turn this into a book." And hmm. I was sort of uh, taken aback by that. I thought, "What well, me write a book?" I ha- I've never done that before, you know, who would want to read this, you know, but, but had, there was some more support from other colleagues say, oh, you should try to put the, this into a book. And so that's a little long-winded way of saying, you know, life is, it's non-linear, right? And it's unpredictable and you kind of bounce from one thing to another, but it's really through mentors that I've had and their encouragement, they've given me ideas and really helped shape the opportunities that I've had. That is a great point because I think so many people are afraid to put themselves out there and they have the same feelings you did, right? Well, who am I to write a book? And it wouldn't have occurred to you on your own to do that. But by being passionate about what you were doing, by having mentors, 
you were able to get the encouragement, but then you also had to say yes. Yeah. You know, just having someone make a suggestion isn't the same as doing the thing. So were there times where you weren't sure what the next step would be? And what did you do to, you know, get publishers for the book and all of that? Yeah, the answer is yes, absolutely. There are many times I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> for my first book, Transmaterial, if we can use a musical analogy, like the music industry, I made effectively a demo album, meaning I, I created a manuscript on my own of what I thought were the most interesting, engaging products and technologies at the time. And through creating that demo album, I was forced with the, the opportunity to make sense of that larger collection of things. And, and in creating this larger collection, what is the structure? What are the trends and kind of trajectories that are emerging out of this larger collection? At the time, I probably had several hundred products that I, that I you know, as part of this database, not, not a huge database, but that exercise was really informative for me to be able to start seeing a little bit more of the forest instead of the trees, so to speak, right? Yeah, In terms of a, yeah. uh, this field. So having said that, so I had this, uh, I remember I was using, you know, PageMaker or something like that and just printing these pages and, and making these books manually. <laughs> no publisher or anything. But then I got somehow... Some a friend of someone saw it and said, "Oh, can I order one for my boyfriend for Christmas?" And you know, there's a little bit of interest in this book, and that gave me a little bit of confidence to try to shop it around to publishers. And I did; I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, and and publishing remains, even though I've published a few books now, still remains a mysterious business because you know. It's the whole notion of making a pitch and a proposal and what should go in it and how you should, you know, how you can woo publishers, but not too many at once. And this, this whole process is so interesting and I still don't fully understand it, <laughs> but, but I spoke to a few publishers and there was interest and then I just moved from there. But it was interesting because the publisher that I worked with, Prince and Architectural Press, was interested, but there was some study. And well, what do you think about this? Maybe a few changes. And then suddenly it was, okay, we have to go now. <laughs> we have to get this, you know, we have to get this to a certain level so it could be as part of next year's catalog. Wow. And yeah, some, someone just spotlighted it. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's this hurry up and wait kind of thing, which, which isn't maybe too different than working with some clients on actual, you know, built projects, right? Uh, lots of study and figuring out contracts and then, okay, now let's do it. So there were a few late nights, I'll have to say. That was that was tough. It was tough on my family, I think, during that time. It was a relatively short time, but working really, really hard on that first book to get that done. I'm so happy you shared that story because I think a lot of people who care passionately about issues don't know how to be an influencer, not just a doer, because no matter how amazing your project is, if the knowledge and the innovation stays in the silo of that project, it's not affecting the greater good. And I think the, the platforms that you've used with your students, with your writing, with your publishing, 
really helps to advance other people and you know now they can build off of the work that you've done and the next step and the next step so what's your big vision you know in in a perfect world in 10 more years what do you really want to see happening in the way that architecture is practiced buildings are built and how people think about space that's a, a profound question that's not an easy question, Angela, but it's a great one. So I would I would describe my vision and kind of uh, ultimate aspiration for, let's say, the, the built environment and, and the people who design and populate and use the built environment to be a confluence of several things. Design innovation, which has to do with boldness and creativity and willingness to take safe risks, right, and to really explore the aesthetic potentials of things and how we communicate to one another, et cetera. Another dimension, of course, is sustainability. We have to confront the climate crisis uh, in a way that we, we simply haven't done before. We have so much work to do and the time is running out, as we know. But there's a lot that we can do. I'm convinced that there's a tremendous amount that this same pursuit of innovation and design can bring about in terms of the, on the technological side, if it's about saving energy and reducing emissions. And then another equally important area, of course, has to do with the people themselves, us. And we also have a tremendous amount of work to do in the areas of equity and diversity and, and inclusion, as, as we all know, right? Every, every business today is aware that we have a lot, there's a lot of effort that we need to put into the projects of making equitable you know, workplaces and an equitable society, as well as an environmentally responsible, having an environmentally responsible platform. And so how all these intersect is really interesting to me. And I feel that there are some really interesting opportunities, just to give an example in education. One of the reasons that I, I came to UNC Charlotte is that it's an urban research university that supports a diverse population of students and a population that is high performing, but has this wonderful diversity that, you know, might surprise some of the kind of selective, mostly white schools, right? You think that somehow that if you provide access that you don't have excellence. But uh, what I'm excited about is how we can level multiple playing fields. So it's not just, certainly it's, it's leveling the playing field in the discipline as a whole, which we really need to do. But it's also leveling the playing field in certain areas of expertise. So if you were to look at architecture and, and design more broadly, let's say you're looking for you know, women or BIPOC architects, in general, you'd be hard pressed to find people in leadership positions, right? Or, or cer certainly a lot of Black architects because there aren't that many, right? We know that. Now, that's kind of generally speaking, if you're to look at areas that have to do with environmental design and technology, for example, or digital fabrication, you know, and computational design and things, now we're looking at an even, even wider <laughs> male-dominated kind of subset, right, or subsets of, of the discipline, just, just by nature of, you know, who composes those areas. And so one of my goals, and this is one of many, is how can we level those playing fields as well, right? Because 
with these goals of innovation and design and technology, environmental innovation, we need to have all present. <laughs> you know, we Absolutely, we need to have yeah. yeah a diverse a diverse audience uh, and and true equity to really accomplish the things that we need to accomplish. It definitely is an issue because when you have only a fraction of a population choosing to become an architect then there's even fewer available for specialization. But I really like the way that you are tying it to broader community issues. So if anything, perhaps minorities would be more attracted to this kind of work because they can see greater impact in their own communities. Yeah, absolutely. The the question point you raise, you know, relating to environmental justice, right, is is an obvious one. Those communities most affected, adversely affected by environmental problems tend to be those those communities. And so it makes perfect sense that we really help those communities as much as possible to be doing the same work, you know, be have that level playing field, be at the table and doing that good work with everybody. Yeah, and understanding that there actually are interventions. You know, it's easy to feel skeptical when you're in a community where a lot of people march through and offer a lot of platitudes, but you don't see a lot of change. And as a lay person, people tend to be reactionary, right? So if there's crime, I'll build a fence or I'll put better lighting up or an alarm versus understanding that you could design to have more activated streets and a more social kind of a neighborhood where people would know one another and be more willing to speak up if they saw something that didn't look right. And I imagine environmentally, it's the same thing. There's a certain amount of education for just the citizen out there before they can want to invest in a different way of doing things. Yeah, absolutely. On that note, I'm really intrigued by efforts taking place in uh, the least advantaged communities. And I'm thinking worldwide, these types of projects would be familiar to you and others. The installation of solar, you know, standalone solar facilities, let's say, in remote parts of uh, South America or, or countries in Africa. Just for example, there's this kind of leapfrogging effect that's happening with off-grid renewable technologies that can provide things like electricity, lighting, refrigeration for medical supplies, other things that aren't tied to the really cumbersome kind of dinosaur, <laughs> if you, in many ways, uh, electrical grid and other kinds of water infrastructure systems that that we have in, in a lot of the so-called developed world. It'll be really interesting to see, because in many ways, we're all interested in, if not standalone, then certainly distributed power capabilities, distributed water, right, harvesting, purification capabilities, et cetera. There's so many advantages to those things. It'll be interesting to see these, these two worlds and how they could potentially converge for positive benefits for everybody. Absolutely. I I think developing countries, especially because the people have been exploited in so many different ways, many times even by their own governments. So having access to these resources in a more do-it-yourself kind of empowering way, 
I think is going to be very impactful going into the future. Yeah, absolutely. Just thinking about the the challenges that we face in, in the climate, and you know, the kind of obvious challenges. There are also many challenges that have to do with infrastructure coming to the end of its useful life and being really strained. And so we have an interesting situation where, on the one hand, there's a lot of concern about accelerating resource utilization, right, and kind of population growth and demand for resources and the related emissions, right? But at the same time, so many of the systems that we've created are vulnerable right now, like our power grid, water systems, a lot of different types of infrastructure, concrete itself, plain steel reinforced concrete, which dominates the built environment globally, is under threat uh, in, in ways that people didn't realize, you know, 50 years ago or, you know, decades, any kind of time frame within the last hundred years that as we're seeing, you know, in Florida, unfortunately, can lead to serious problems. If, you know, water gets in the, the concrete, we can't necessarily see that uh, it can rust mm-hmm. out the steel and lead to collapse. And that, that may not be exactly what happened in the case of this, the collapsed condo towers, but, uh, but this is something that we've seen and we have to look at. So I don't mean to be doom and gloom, but I think that our challenges facing climate change have, have a parallel in facing infrastructural uh, health right? And we're, we're going to have to uh, maintain our infrastructure so that it operates, but at the same time, redesign it in a lot of ways. And hopefully that redesign, I mean, that's, that's a great opportunity, obviously, for the redesign of that infrastructure to be much more environmentally responsible, but also much more effective technologically. So what advice would you have for architects who are listening to this and they're like, I'm in, yes, yes, yes. How do they really advance these issues? How can they begin to start, not just on a project with a client, but maybe with their local government or more broadly start to make a difference? It's a really interesting time. And that's a, that's a good question. So much is changing now there's still a lot of skepticism and risk aversion but i think there are opportunities there are many opportunities and even if they're uh, kind of episodic opportunities those would be things to pursue and so let's say if it's architects working on a project uh, many architects today are familiar with green principles you know uh, or lead guidelines or living building challenge these types of things and there's so many great approaches and practices and procedures and and these types of green programs. I will acknowledge that uh, the profession can seem for legitimate reasons to be that much more complex than it was a generation or so ago or more because there are so many new regulations, guidelines, policies, (laughs) you know, more white papers and catalogs and, and you should do this and right. Uh, and I mean, there are so many eco labels, for example, there's just been an explosion. And so it can, it can seem really daunting, but my advice would be uh, once you kind of learn the basics of, of sustainable design to find, find opportunities on projects where you can go deep, because I think that innovation and really moving uh the profession forward and making measurable progress is going to require 
those moments where we can kind of go deep on an issue and really drill down and try to move the needle even beyond what the catalog or, or checklist advises. That's, that's what we're seeing in, in the case of energy harvesting, for example, when we switched from thinking of net zero operational targets to net positive operational targets. You know, and now with materials looking much more closely at embodied energy materials, there's a tremendous amount of work to be done with embodied energy. And this whole notion of embodied energy accounting is absolutely fascinating. So uh, that's just a general answer, but I would say within, within the kind of larger spectrum of green building practices, seeing an opportunity on a project that's specific to a, a certain type of technology or material, or you know, whether it's energy or better windows or whatever it is, and just really kind of diving in to try to make progress. So if people want to learn more about your work, how should they find you? Well, good question. So I have a, a website called transmaterial.net, and that includes samples of some of the products in my books and, and some other products not in my books. And they can also find me at uh, uncc.edu if, or if they type in Blaine Brownell, Charlotte or something like that, you know, my faculty page at UNC Charlotte. So what's next for you? What do you have in the works or about to come out? I've got a couple projects right now, and they're related, but, but slightly different. So one project, it is a, a, a book project and a, and a class that I'm teaching that focuses on sustainable design, trying to link small-scale assessment methods to large-scale assessment methods. Right now, we have different languages. Uh, Small-scale mm-hmm. assessment is, is what we're more used to in the building industry. It's things like life cycle assessment, which is done mainly for products, but also now more and more for buildings at that scale or those scales. Uh, some material flow analysis and other uh, approaches. Uh, at the large scale, we have things like geodesign, uh, ecological footprint accounting, and people will be familiar with these when... or something like ecological footprint, when you hear, oh, we're using six planets instead of one, you know, in the developed world, or three planets worth of resources on on average for the global population. That's kind of related to this notion of just looking broadly, right, at resource utilization, uh, emissions assimilation capacity of the planet, and dividing by the number of people on the planet, right? And so the, the large scale assessments help us understand if if sustainability is living within our means, right? That can translate for many to one planet living, right? That makes sense. We need to live mm-hmm. on one planet, use one planet's worth of resources and not create more than one planet's worth of emissions, right? Then, then the planet can absorb in a timely fashion. Uh, but when we're working on designing a product or a building, there's no connection to one planet calculus, right? right it's, yeah. it's really tricky and thorny. Like how I could create a living building. I mean, our lead platinum building, but it may, it may somehow factor into a two planet or a three planet reality. I mean, right. It, it depends on so many yeah. factors. And so I'm really, I'm interested in methods that get, that connect 
those uh, those different scales. Because I think until we have that dashboard, and I know there's so much complexity and uncertainty, but until we have some sense of that dashboard, then we can just keep designing and it's like good intent. <laughs> it's like well-intended, but uh, where are we? I just don't know, right? Uh, so that's one project. And then another project is trying to make sense of COVID for the built environment. Like what, what is gonna happen in the built environment uh, in the future? How can we create what we might call an inoculated architecture, right? In the future, what, whatever that means, right? It looks, this project looks at everything from, you know, surfaces, systems, spaces, and also society at large, thinking about how things are gonna change and looking at experts that are interested in the microbiome of the environment, you know, not just in our gut, right, or in our bodies, but mm -hmm. also in our interior environments and how they operate for benefit as well as for ill. UVC lighting, uh, new types of HVAC systems, better access to fresh air. I mean, all those types of things, social distancing, how is all of that going to influence future architecture? Well, that is really fascinating. You know, and, and with your background in materiality, you're really probably one of the best suited people I know to really think about what does it look like to have more touchless surfaces or antimicrobial surfaces or surfaces that improve air quality? Right. Yeah. And what's really fascinating, as you know, from, from your expertise in the health field, you know, disinfectants are not always the way to go, right? Because they create resistance in microbes to, uh, to those chemicals and products, and those aren't necessarily good for the environment either. And so looking at things like biomimetic strategies that are non-toxic to disrupt microbes on surfaces is a fascinating area that merits a lot more development. Well, definitely keep us posted. I, I can't wait to learn more about these developments and how they work into products. So I know you had done some interface with manufacturers. Do you see manufacturers being more willing to go from, you know, translational research instead of just doing their own R&D? Yeah, I think I, I'm seeing positive trends uh, as, as I'm sure you are in, uh, in research in general and an awareness uh, and willingness to look at the technology transfer and knowledge transfer between different disciplines, between the private sector and the academy and the public sector. And so I think, I mean, I'm, I, I think there, there are a lot of positive aspects of how research is done and continued, continues to be conducted. Uh, and the fact that there are firms like yours who are increasingly taking a really active approach to research, you know, and, and looking at research questions where architecture firms, for the most part, weren't really involved with research through design and, you know, project implementation. There's always been that, but these kind of larger questions, right, the kind of wicked problems or challenges that we face in the future, that kind of research that's more general. Uh, I'm excited to see so many firms today involved in that. And I know it's, it can be daunting, right? Because it requires time and energy and money, et cetera, at some level. Uh, but uh, I, I, I really encourage the firms that are doing that work to continue it. And uh, for those who aren't, maybe perhaps challenged by 
you know, how are we going to afford this? There are some great models uh, that don't require a whole lot of money or, uh, or effort. And one that I experienced personally was, uh, you know, it's, it's a little bit like, you know, the companies that give the employee like one afternoon a week to do, you know, like 3M famously did, did that just to kind of study thing is there, and maybe it's not one afternoon, maybe it's one lunch hour or something like that. But uh, giving, you know, I think distributed models of research where people can pursue their passions and interests in practice, that might be general. They may not relate specifically to one project, but to be able to use that kind of collective intelligence and have uh, robust systems of capturing that knowledge and sharing it, I think it's going to be a great way to move forward that won't actually cost uh, firms that much to do. Well, the gauntlet is now officially thrown down. (laughs) Thank you so much, Blaine, for joining us. Um, This has been an amazing discussion, and um, I will put all of the links to the resources you mentioned in the show notes. And everyone, please go visit. Blaine has been doing some really fascinating stuff that is advancing our industry. It's so, so exciting. Well, Angela, thank you so much. And and for all that you do for the industry as well. Thank you. Thanks for being part of this episode of Architecting. If you enjoyed the show, join our community on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn to keep up with what's in the show pipeline, including a behind-the-scenes look at my architecture lifestyle. Feel free to share your content ideas. Love to hear your feedback. You can also visit architectingpodcast.com to download free career content and learn about my classes, book, and coaching programs. Until next time, stay inspired. (laughs) 